Show these fast hillbillies can do. You're tuned in, you are tuned in to KEPW 97.3 FM LP Eugene Homegrown Radio. We are now live and are live streaming at KEPW.org. You can email us in questions or comments throughout the show, which we will try to answer, although we have a lot to cover today, so we are going to answer questions if we have time near the end of the broadcast. So, I am your co-host, friend Catherine. And I am your co-host, friend Sims. We are Anarcha Quakers. We just made that term up, but we're going to go with it, and we hope you'll come with us as we explore the relationship between Quakerism and anarchism. And the world today! Yay! Okay, so on this show, what are we doing, Sims? We're going to be interviewing anarchists and Quakers, as well as discussing pressing issues of our time in our community. There's a lot of fascinating theory and history of anarchism, and in the traditions of radical Christianity and the Religious Society of Friends, or people known better as Quakers. On this show, we will be interviewing uh, so many really exciting people. We have a lot of interviews lined up, including we're going to be talking to a couple of people from the Portland Assembly, which is a group that's doing really inspiring work up in Portland, helping institute direct democracy in neighborhoods, although you may know them better as the Pothole People. Really excited. As soon as I saw that project, I was like, yes, I want to talk to them. So anarchists fixing potholes in the roads. Yes. So we've also got lined up. Some comrades from the base, Brooklyn, who work with the Revolutionary Abolitionist Movement and are also working in solidarity with the Rojava Revolution. We will be speaking with an African-American Quaker friend about her experience being kicked out of her Quaker friends meeting for bringing up social justice issues. One of the editors of the University of Oregon student insurgent publication, an amazing Quaker elder from our own meeting, and possibly a member of Eugene Antifa, among others. But... This is going to be an introductory episode to explain how anarchist Quakers are even a thing. And it is such a thing. So first, a little bit about us. Um, I am a Quaker, a syndicalist, and anarchish. I'm a mostly non-biblical Quaker. I came to politics through family, my meeting, and resistance to the Iraq War. I'm a member of the Eugene Friends Monthly Meeting, although I'm not representing them here today. Eugene Friends Monthly Meeting is part of the North Pacific Yearly Meeting, which is part of the Friends General Conference of the U.S. and of the World Conference of Friends. So I actually was an anarchist first, and of the most common variety of anarchist would be anarcho-communism. And when you hear the word anarchist, that's most likely what it is referring to. Uh, I am a fairly recently convinced friend, although I do think I was kind of a Quaker this whole time before I just found Quakerism. And uh, the more, more to my own surprise, the more that I read the Bible, the more I like it. So I do at this point consider myself more of a biblical Quaker and follower of Christ. So let's get into it. Um, the first thing that we wanted to talk about today is acknowledge that there's some stereotypes of who Quakers are and who anarchists are. And that, you know, it's strange 
they have a sort of a strange relationship in terms of their stereotypes. The stereotypes of the anarchist is sort of this black clad, um, historically bomb throwing, the more recently window smashing riots and so on, loud confrontational uh, enemies of the state. While Quakers are stereotyped more as quiet, constructive, community building, obedient um, friends, people who helped slave escapes a few centuries ago during the pre-slavery civil war. These are narratives that are sort of incongruous in some ways. Um, sort of very unlikely stereotypes in which to find compatible narratives. But the histories of these stereotypes are contested. Quakers were arrested in droves during the early years of their history, while anarchists are responsible for mutual aid aid during the most harrowing of circumstances, from the Spanish Civil War to New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina. And unsurprisingly, any group of people is not going to be monolithic. So that's one of the things we want to get into in this show, is talking about more of the nuances of these um, groups of people that we happen to be an intersection of because we exist, we're real, and it makes sense. So first off, in order to talk about, in order to sort of dive into how these two things can work together, we need to explain what they are. I am going to start out talking about what anarchism is. So, what is anarchism anyway? So if you look at a political scale from the far left to the far right, what you have on the far right is full authoritarianism. This is a hierarchy where all of the power and all of the wealth is at the very top, controlled by either a single or a small handful of people, and everybody else is sucked away of their power. They don't have anything, basically, and they have to do what everybody at the top says. So then, all the way on the far left is full anti-authoritarianism, also known as anarchism. This is where power is completely egalitarianly um, spread out between all peoples. So it's the opposite of authoritarian. They use what's a horizontal process. So everybody has a say in political decisions, as opposed to authoritarian on the fall right, where nobody has any say in it except for the people at the very top. So one of the important defining factors of how a society is run is how people are, you know, quote-unquote, kept in line, or sort of how society keeps order and keeps things moving along. So we're going to talk about carrots and sticks. So we all know the idea of carrots and sticks. We're going to say what those are and how this relates. Basically, sticks is punishment and carrots are incentives, positive incentives and reward. So on the far right with authoritarians, it's just all sticks. Just all sticks <laughs> all the time. Right. It's just it's just straight up punishment, uh, beating people into submission and fear. And your, your classic totalitarian state. Classic totalitarian state. Um, yeah. Sort of the ideas of Big Brother where the state is in absolute control. Right. Yeah. Basically, it sucks pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the far left with full anarchism and full anti-authoritarianism, the idea would be just only carrots. So instead of a punishment-based system, what you have is a way of setting up society that um, rewards people for being communally minded. So that's pretty great, I think, is a better idea. Right now what we have and what people think of as sort of democracy is still hierarchical in nature and does rely, depending on what sort of oppressive state you are in in that hierarchy more on sticks than on carrots. And that's sort of how it's always going to happen within a hierarchy. So another reason that another thing that sort of separates the far right from the far left is how incentives are used. Incentives are really important. So in a strongly hierarchical authoritarian society, the incentives are to gain power over others. Basically, if you're going to have any power in that society, you have to step on everybody else to get to the top. You have to gain more power by stealing it from other people. And so everybody in a hierarchical society is therefore incentivized to try and move up the ladder by treating everybody else like crap. However, in an anarchist society, incentives are to make sure that authoritarianism isn't part of the society and that Everybody, everybody is incentivized to keep the community strong by keeping each other's rights and liberties strong as well. 
So, and I think there's also rewards in saying that you know by being part of the community, by fulfilling the needs of the community, by working together, um, uh, that you achieve a greater goal together. Um, right. So the idea being that um, an understanding instead of stepping on everybody to gain power. You want to continually make sure that power is evenly distributed between everybody, which sets up a situation where what's good for the individual is good for the group, and what's yeah. good for the group is good for the individual. So then the incentives are lined up to make sure that the group is doing well for yourself, as well as making the group making sure that everybody else is doing well in order for their own selves. So the idea is not based on the idea of just giving up everything you have out of just sort of like some moral standpoint or something because it's what you're supposed to do you're literally just lining up incentives so what is good for you is good for you you know i think it's a little bit utopian to think that people will always be able to give out of their own kindness and not just for what's good for them so uh, this leads into why anarchists another strong strain of anarchist theory is anti-capitalism because capitalism is an authoritarian hierarchical system which still is using incentives for people to gain power and in this case power at, for in the form of wealth to be above other people so it's the same sort of authoritarian system where people are gaining wealth by stealing it from other people and in order to move up the ladder to have more and more wealth so to be an anti-authoritarian is to be an anti-capitalist I was I was just thinking while you were talking when you were describing authoritarianism, I was like, golly, that sounds a lot like capitalism, right? Like <laughs> folks who try to move up the ladder and cheat people underneath them, right? Who the successful executive, right, is the one that says, well, I'm going to pay my workers as little as possible, sell my thing as much as I can, even if I'm ripping off my customers, to make as much money as I can, to accumulate as much wealth, as much power as I can. Um, and I think it's worth noting that the relationship between that power of money and society um, both in the U.S. in terms of like money being able to buy elections, but also in terms of you know, there's a lot of talk about you know after you after someone has like a billion dollars or whatever, um, at that point you're no longer using money to buy things. Like you're not going to be making billion dollar purchases, right? Like that money just exists as a source to buy power and influence. It's, right. It's no longer even about like your personal happiness. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, because as we know, actually, personal happiness has nothing to do with wealth. There's been a number of studies showing that after a certain point where your basic needs are met, it's like not actually doing that much for you as far as like happiness goes, which is one of the things that we talk about um, as Quaker simplicity and as anarchists saying um, real joy actually comes from community, from communal relationships with other people and not from the amassing of wealth and power. Which, fun fact, for Oregon, that study concluded that the number was a, was a little over $70,000 annually. So if you're earning more than that, you know, you, you're probably going to be happier if you'd be donating it. <laughs> oh, 70 grand. Wow. That's, that's, I am not making that. <laughs> okay. Okay, great. So that's your basic intro to anarchism. Uh, do you want to go ahead, Sims, and talk about Quakers? Yeah. Um, so Quakers emerged in the mid-1600s um, during a period of great unrest. Um, central to uh, Quaker theology uh, was a fellow named George Fox. Um, and uh, George Fox sort of traveled around um, England at this time, and there was... Uh, there was great strife and, strife and conflict. Um, these were during the Cromwellian years. Um, and um, Fox really said, you know, I'm, I struggle with this idea of the church. I struggle with this idea of a strong body of religion that, that tells me what to think in the face of um, what I know might be different. Um, there were positions of the, uh, of the Catholic Church which were saying, um, you know, follow this military order um, and support these people. And there was the uh, emerging Church of England uh, contradicting that, saying, no, you need to support these other people. Um, There's there a great deal of head-to-head conflict here. And George Fox was saying, no, um, Jesus has very clear messages about violence and nonviolence and participation in militaries. And he really struggled by, because all of a sudden you had, if you joined one militia and you were arrested by the other militia, you may be attacked or killed, you know? And so here are all these religious ideologies telling people what to do, and clearly they can't both be right. And so Fox really struggled with that. Um, and so 
Quaker ideology really comes out of this history of saying, really, how can we, um, both how can we prevent civil war, but also we want a society which is based um, based in people, not in some abstract um, political body that makes decisions for us over here, but that our our meetings and our and our worship of God decides for us instead what we're going to do for ourselves. Um, and so uh, Quaker testimonies, the Quaker beliefs, um, have sort of emerged in a couple different ways, but um, the main ones are use the um, the the spelling out of the word spices, which is because uh, <laughs> we're spicy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, no. Um, Quakers being simplicity, which is uh, to live in simple ways, um, and that's to say not to live um, with extravagance, not to live in extreme opulence, um, with peace, eschewing war and military service with integrity, which is both, uh, personal integrity. And we can talk about a little bit, the multiple meanings of this later, but, Mm -hmm. um, also in terms of having good relationships with other people and building, uh, building community and yeah, and not basing our relationships based on exploitative models. Um, also community that's, building the relationships around one another and having that as a strong foundation of where we come from, equality, that there's that of God in all people. Um, this is very central to Quaker tenets, that there's no people that are inherently worth more than others. This is one of the reasons why colonialism and imperialist war is sort of rankling for Quakers, because you can't have a superior army which is justified for any reason. I mean, we're going to, at another time, have to talk about some of the problems with Quakerism. And we were colonial, like we're white, like there was colonial happening oh, and stuff. <laughs> but, but but the idea of like equality being so important, that was really important to Quakers in the abolitionist movement. Um, even way back and during George Fox's time, one of the things that he noticed, one of the reasons he did not want to be part of any of the churches that he went around to, because he was going from church to church to church to try and find something that spoke to his condition. And one of the stories he has is he went to this one church and was talking to the pastor afterwards, seemed like a nice guy. And then this pastor says, oh, by the way, I think women are just about as intelligent as dogs and just about as useless. And George Fox was so upset by that. He just thought it was the worst thing he'd ever heard. And he said, this is terrible. So because they believe, because we believe as Quakers that there is um, a light of God in everybody, Quakers have been on the forefront of women's rights for since the 1600s, way before it was cool. <laughs> and then also um, on the rights of slaves from also back way before it was cool. And we're very part, uh, a strong part of the um, abolitionist movement and uh, very key in the running of the Underground Railroad. And as you mentioned, there's some, you know, there's some contradictions in there. There were um, members of the Religious Society of Friends at the time who also were slave owners, and this caused a great deal of contention in the, the society, the Religious Society of Friends, um, uh, in debates about what is the right thing to do. Um, and there was uh, there were fights between communities about this. Um, and so this is this is a message, and this is something that Quakers take very seriously that uh, that all people should be inherently inherently equal, even if we're not the same. Um, that we're all equal before God, and that is that is a central tenet to Quaker practice. Um, and the final of the spices um, is stewardship, which is in reference to in keeping with good practice with the land and with the world in which we live, um, and with the relationships that we have. So the thing about me being a follower of Christ and an anarchist. (laughs) Let's just dive right in. (laughs) Let's just dive right in. Let's just dive in. So um, when I started looking for a sort of a spiritual leading and finding that I needed more spirit in my life, um, I was looking around and I found Quakers and I was like, who are these people? Like they're, they're very, very involved in social justice. Um, That kind of speaks to my condition. And um, they are also one of the important parts of being Quaker is not believing in dogma. Um, the idea is that uh, what do, what canst thou say about your relationship with God and that the word is not necessarily the word. As somebody in our meeting today <laughs> said um, in our afterward, which is um, what happens after worship because worship is silent. So you not know, like talking a lot. Um, he said the finger of God, the shoot. I forgot what it is. It's so funny. Oh, the finger points to God. Oh, the word of God points to God. I'm really messing up this quote right now. (laughs) 
<laughs> basically the idea is that um, it's another sort of anarchist thing too is that um, dogma is really damaging. It's just to, like believe in the same thing that was written 2,000 years ago by how it's written for that word without taking into any context. Um, Quakers also think that that doesn't make any sense. And that's that's one of the things too. I think that um, the with Quaker equality also in the belief that God is in all people. Um, many Quakers are referred to as unprogrammed friends because there's not a uh, programmed worship where you would think of there's like a minister with a sermon and a choir and the greeting and coffee and whatever, whatever. Um, the unprogrammed friends have no ministers. So people come, or rather, some have argued that every Quaker is a minister, that people attend and everyone gathers in silence um, uh, to experience to experience to God and reflect on the light within themselves and in the world and out of that out of that silence will speak if they're moved to do so right so like when i first my first quaker meeting um i was just sort of like shocked about how non-judgmental it was and nobody told me what my spiritual journey was supposed to be and like nobody told me what my relationship was to god was supposed to be and nobody said anything about how religious doctrine affected your social views um or any you know i mean your idea you know nobody's saying um, using the Bible to say horrible things because it's of all this dogma. And I decided, like, well, if I'm going to look into a sort of religious tradition, I should start with my own um, my own religious tradition in my family, which is Christian. So I figured um, it seems like a place to start as somebody who is a white of Christian heritage that to start with my own tradition. And when I did, and I started reading the Bible, I was like, what the, like, what Bible are these people reading? Like, <laughs> on the far right, I have, it's just ridiculous. I'm reading, I'm reading this, and I'm like, man, this has really been hijacked. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, the things that Jesus is saying are radical. Like, he's, like, rad radical, and uh, he basically, when I'm reading this, I'm just like, it's so, it was so joyous, and I'm just laughing all the time because these stories that like, he was just so <laughs> in your face, and, you know, basically, you know, he comes in to talk to people, and it's this, um, Hello, I am Christ the Savior and the Son of God, and I'm here to uh, spread the word of God. And the word of God is that you're a dick, and you and your wealth, and you and your systems of oppression can, like, go straight to hell. <laughs> and I was like, that does speak to my condition, which is like a George Fox thing. And so it, like, fit in very nicely with my already sort of anarchist values. And um, so I've been, I've been learning a lot from him and then getting more, like, really upset at how Christianity has been so warped. Absolutely. You know, it's just been crazy warped. And, like, you go all the way back to the early Christians, and they were really radical, too. And it wasn't about, like, Christ wasn't so much about um, the sort of the, like, horrible things people say now. It was, he was this, like, he radically changed human, humanity's relationship to wealth and to systems of oppression. Um, and it's, it's a very, very interesting thing to study. I don't know if it's, if I'm so much into the like savior sort of more mystical side of things, but I do think he was like a super cool guy with a lot to say about community (laughs) organizing. So, um, yeah. And just, it's, it's just ridiculous. It's so ridiculous that, um, how the right functions in what they're saying that Jesus says, it's like, when, what, where, no, wrong. You know, and, and some of those narratives I think that are important to point out is that you hear um, so much on the right about uh, condemnation of birth control. That like, oh, well, if you're taking birth control, that must mean that you are, you know, uh, that both like uh, having sex is inherently a bad thing and that by having sex that you're inherently a sinner and that sin is inherent damnation. There's like all this like wrapped up guilt um, tied into it that in some ways is, is like deeply insulting. Um, and so you see out of repression, like making it harder to get access to birth control, making it harder to get access to abortion, repression of LGBTQIA rights. Um, we saw literally hundreds of millions of dollars pouring into, uh, statewide elections and ballot initiatives to try to repress, um, same sex marriages, um, out of these far right communities. Um, and you also see this, like all of this money coming out, you know, at the same time, is like there are people in the same places where this is coming from who are completely destitute. You know, like there's homelessness is rampant in the United States. Uh, poverty is rampant in the United States. And 
here we have these um, these groups that are spending their money to try to repress other people's rights. Yeah, um, that's not Christian. <laughs> that is not a Christian way to be. You know, I have a so I have a sort of an anecdote about this sort of like <clears throat> false Christianism from the right versus sort of how I see anarchist good works. <laughs> it's like really a more Christian way of doing things. So I'm I'm out there in doing burrito brigade, where you feed. Um, you just make burritos and then feed them to the unhoused. Um, and while I'm there at the at the um, train station, there's like a table set up with some, I don't know if they were Baptists or what, they had like really big crosses on their shirts. <laughs> and then uh, they had a little table with coffee on it. And they were kind of like, you, I, I just, you can see the unhoused people like, think, oh man, I really want coffee. <laughs> they have to like go up to them, and you know that they're gonna like preach word at them, and like the the coffee is just sort of this agenda to in order to get people to talk to them about their whatever, you know. And then you know, like right up the street from that is Food Not Bombs, and like fo- what Food Not Bombs does is it actually feeds the hungry because they're hungry, like no hidden agenda. You know what I mean? Like no crap, no no big crosses. What? Oh, did I swear? Oh man, dude, I'm gonna have to have I'm gonna have to be really more careful about that. <laughs> I get I get fiery, so yeah, let's let's be careful about that. Um So yeah, I mean and I think that's this is one of the big critiques in of the sort of uh religious charity movement today is that like for people who are um houseless or homeless that are that need food, need resources, um, that going to religious based organizations, you you have to pray. You have to be of that religion. You have to take that God, um, and you have to take that specific word of God, that line of God, um, to be accepted. And that's there's for me, there's something like really gross about that, that like, I'm not just going to feed you because it's the right thing to do, but instead that the only reason to feed you is so that you can hear my particular line of God. That's just like, that's so gross. That's so gross. (laughs) That's so gross. And that's, again, not how Christ did things at all. Right? Like traveled around for free was like, I'm going to feed thousands of people near Galilee. I'm going to travel to another town and feed 7,000 people. Travel to another town, feed 5,000 people. I'm going to heal sick. We're going to, you know, we're going to travel around. We're going to heal everyone. I mean. Yeah. And you're going to leave your purses at home and you're not going to ask for anything. I mean, yeah, that's that's not actually quite true. But the idea being that what the Christian right has done is so offensive to me now, the more I learn about Christ, I get more and more offended by how they are sort of twisting his word to these really oppressive, terrible, hateful uses. And that's the thing that, like, I feel often as though um, the... The idea of, like, the Jesus in the Bible is, is almost irreconcilable with the narratives that are spread in sort of popular religion today um, in a way that's, that to me is, is deeply insulting. Um, and, yeah. I, and I hear these, these yeah. narratives and I feel like I'm being asked as a, like, as a Christian to seed my beliefs um, and give them up uh, because there's more people to the far right. But, like, I'm not going to give up you know, what I believe yeah. just because there are more conservatives of a certain, you know, of a certain persuasion. Um, yeah. And then there's this really, like, really beautiful, rich history of social justice work within uh, the Christian tradition also, word. which has been, you know, you're saying here, the Polish solidarity movement, um, the civil rights movement, black liberation theology, um, you know, Dorothy Day and the Catholic Catholic worker movement. The Catholic worker movement. And even if you go back further than that, Christianity has been key in all sorts of these just like little uprisings all over Europe that to try and take back some power and like reinstate direct democracy in all of these little townships and stuff. So. And I think that that's, that's really true is that like there has been, uh, there's a fantastic book on this called Disruptive Religion um, that covers different social movements that have been informed by religion, which can be incredibly powerful. Um, that have, you know, specifically towards building community engagement. Um, and 
many of them have not occurred in the United States. That <laughs> uh, there's this like strange conservative thing that like has tried to turn Christianity into this like justification for obscene wealth. You know, like mm-hmm. just work harder so that your rich boss can get richer. Like that makes it no makes, sense. Makes zero sense. And then it's also so I see it as I think Marx was like a little bit wrong on this one. Just a little bit. I think what's happened <clears throat> is everybody was equally, well, I don't know, like, especially anarchists back in the day, everyone's equally against the institutions of the church, that the institutions are corrupt because they're hierarchical. But actually, uh, I've noticed when I'm reading anarchist theory that there's a lot of soft spots for Jesus. <laughs> like, well, because, you know, the idea is that um, we've got political power, you've got the power of wealth, but then you've also got the power of the spirit and you've got the power of religion, which is incredibly powerful. And so religion and like the spirit of religion and the connection to the divine is another real strong source of power that has been also hijacked and corrupted and used as a tool by oppressive systems. So, you know, I see it as just another, another thing that is being, you know, um, just twisted in order to help the powerful and the oppressors have power. And the left has really ceded that power, I think, over the last century um, in a pretty unfortunate way, which has left this void for the far right in or- to, to take on all of that power of religion. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that more in future episodes uh, when looking at the far right and, and some of the sort of neo-fascist movements and how they've tried to play on... Um, Christian and social narratives. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's one of the very like profound dangers of authoritarianism using religion, you know, and there's the, there's the great quote that's, you know, when fascism comes to America, it'll be carrying the cross and draped in the flag, you know, which seems to be, you know, accurate. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. Um, and so I think it's, um, I think it's important as far as this program is concerned to really say that we, um, I think in terms of our theology, we reject this sort of uh, conservative narrative um, that you hear so much on, like, sort of Christian radio. And, you know, at that point, it's like, do you, like, are you even reading the Bible? Like, the things you're saying make no sense in Zero context. Sense. Um, and, like, like, where do you get, like, are you just, like, listening to your pastor who takes things out of context? Like, if you read whatever the jesus of the bible is a flaming socialist <laughs> i don't know i think he's even like, there's even some anarchisty stuff that oh, he absolutely. does for sure i mean you should i we are going to talk about it at another time but yes. jesus totally goes up and shames people for shames the powers that be for caring more about property than people than and for humans hoarding wealth and for hoarding wealth and for you know and also yeah so and for denying people access to food and he access also, to medicine things that are happening today well and like, he also i mean there's some <laughs> there's some really really great moments that i like definitely enjoyed like there's one moment where jesus is telling his disciples before they go out to preach that to really to try not to get arrested because it's really <laughs> expensive <laughs> because bail is not cheap <laughs> like that's hilarious how, and i have to go i'm gonna go look at the catholic study bible and see how on earth they redefined that because it's it's pretty clear to me that that's what he's saying <laughs> um, um but sort of yeah moving on um you know i think that the there's a lot of um we talked a little bit about the stereotypes of of anarchism and and quakerism and and what those look like um but in fact that there's uh there's a lot of overlap in uh, the in the biblical uh, Christian and in um, and in early uh, anarchist traditions, and um, we're going to talk about that a little bit. For now, let's let's look at like what are some of the structures that that these have mm-hmm. in common. So all of these similar and same values about egalitarianism and the idea that everybody should have access to power, be that yeah. the commons, the you know shared resources and shared wealth, shared political power, and, and especially in the case of Quakers, shared spiritual power, um, has arisen a lot of very, very similar, or, and actually having borrowed kind of from each other, there's definitely a, a connection between Quaker process and anarchist consensus process. Absolutely. Very closely, the spokes model kinds of things. Um, so because of those underlying values, um, these processes have arisen in a very parallel and cross-pollinary, pollinating, pollinating, (laughs) (laughs) cross-pollinating way. So we're going to talk about what some of those structures look like and how how they are very similar. 
absolutely. Um, and uh, so one really great piece of history about that, that there's a book that came out in 2011 called Oppose and Propose, um, which is about the uh, a Quaker group in, Philly, in Philadelphia called um, AQUAG, which was um, a Quaker action group. Um, <laughs> Real great acronym. Right, fantastic acronym. <laughs> um, and um, AQUAG uh, was doing anti-war work. This was around the Vietnam War in the 60s and 70s. Um, and one of the projects they started was called the Movement for a New Society. Um, and Movement for a New Society was a cooperative model to say, look, we... Uh, these existing capital structures are inherently unequal. Um, they are uh, violent, they are repressive, and they are fueling uh, our desire for imperialism abroad. We need a different economic model. And so they said, well, let's look at co-ops. And so Movement for a New Society um, created a fairly vast network of housing, medical, food, um, and sustaining um, cooperatives whose goal was to provide for their community. Um, in Philadelphia, and I don't know the exact number, but there's something like they owned like 50 different buildings. I mean, it was it was a massive project. Wow. It, it wasn't just like uh, some people over here decided to do a thing. No, it was it was just a big operation. And uh, the, so the movement for new society. One of the things they did was also um, encourage direct action campaigns, uh, which in which individuals seize power through their own direct action, through taking action themselves. And uh, one of the things that they did was um, they held uh, trainings on how to organize as groups. And so the Movement for New Society, uh, through these trainings all around the Midwest, uh, in the Northeast, um, and on the West Coast, um, sort of introduced the Quaker process of consensus. Um, and in fact, uh, the uh, it's really interesting that um, consensus, which is the process of coming to a decision together as a group, um, which has very strong, uh, very strong Quaker roots, that the Quaker process that we see today in both anarchist and in Quaker communities um, is sort of uncommon among groups, even within the the nonprofit model. Well, it's saying becoming more and more common. More common, but mm-hmm. um, historically. Even like the in the nonprofit community, you still see like there's there's a director, there's like subdirectors, and then there's whatever people yeah. doing things, um, and so you still have this like very hierarchical model. Um, and most businesses, obviously, equal, yeah, yeah, you, know, you have your run that CEO, way. your right. managers, your bosses, and then you know the groups um, that do all the work and make all the money for the company. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so. Um, uh, Quakers through the movement for New society introduced um, uh, introduced consensus as a model, um, which is used uh, which is used today in a lot of anarchist communities. And so there is this really rich history that goes back um, decades and even centuries. You mentioned earlier the uh, the diggers, which were a um, a movement for um, uh, social equality in England, as you had the closing off of the commons. And some of the um, the early diggers were. Um, uh, they were absolutely anarchists as we think of them today. They were saying, look, this, this property system that we have now that's closing off commons, preventing people from using land, which was common land, um, in order that rich people can make more money so they can run more of their more of their crops. The idea of the tragedy of the commons um, is it's sort of a funny myth um, in that one of the things, one of the reasons that that myth was sort of promulgated was to justify the closing off of land t- so mm-hmm. that private property, private landowners could control more land directly. Um, and I have a great quote from a Quaker pamphlet from a Pendle Hill about how property is a, like a terrible idea. <laughs> should, I, should I read that now? <laughs> Do you want me to read that now? Yeah. Okay, I guess it's, let me find it. Um, in the meantime, anyways, the, uh, one of the, the diggers, who's one of the lead organizers of them, who was absolutely an anarchist, also went on to join the Quakers. So there's a long history of anarchism and Quakers running together. Um, okay, so here it is. Friendship and love do not require ownership of property for either their ordinary or their finest expression. Creativeness does not depend on possession. Intangible relationships are more important to the individual and to society than property is. If a person by love and service wins people's trust, that trust will find expression in such forms as to preserve life and increase its happiness and beauty. 
Yeah. Yeah, right? That's a, that's from Pendle Hill Pamphlet, which are awesome. Actually, I'll just explain Pendle Hill Pamphlets yeah. real quick. So the idea of Quakers not believing in dogma and the idea that we are all equal and under the eyes of God and we all have our own right and equality to have a direct experience of divinity instead of having it sort of filtered through other people means that we get to all write our own little um, ministries, our own little uh, booklets that sort of explain our our relationship with the divine and sort of adding that on to like biblical scriptures or whatever you want. Um, and so this, what I just read is from a Pandal Hill pamphlet from 1936 written by Richard B. Gregg called the value of voluntary simplicity, which is like a super anti-capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think also Pendle Hill is a reference to um, George Fox's early inspiration. Um, he was standing at the location of Pendle Hill. Um, and now there is a uh, Pendle Hill is also an education center um, in, uh, I think it's in Pennsylvania. And um, so Pendle Hill pamphlets come yeah. out. Of yeah, the, Pendle Hill, the Pendle- Pendle- Wallingford, Pennsylvania. Okay. Come out of that center. Um, and, um, People have written about their different uh, sort of Quaker experiences over the years. I don't know what number there are now. I think they're like up in the seven hundreds or something. Yeah, I don't the know. number of pamphlets that have been written. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but clearly, it's been going for a while. Yeah. And um, uh, and there's a long history of um, we were talking about the sort of the structures of that anarchists and Quakers use, and and I think anarchists a lot of times have used what you described as spokes model, where you have maybe different committees that are working on different things and they come together in a central hub. Um, so you have sort of spokes and a central hub, like a wheel. Um, and uh, this is based on um, Quaker consensus models. Um, and the reason why I think this sort of caught on among anarchist communities, and we really saw this explode during um, during the Occupy movement where uh, this model was really proposed across the across the U.S. in different contexts, um, although it existed beforehand, was um, you have a central bo- you have a central group where everyone comes together and then people break out to do individual tasks. Um, yeah, and I have here uh, an anarchist book, Come Hell or High Water, a handbook on collective process, Gone Awry, um, put out by AK Press. It's a great book. S- totally read it. But it is based in... The, it, let me just read a quote here. So remember, anarchists. This is like how anarchists function. Just saying that again. Behavioral guidelines cannot substitute for basic respect, decency, common sense, or an honest attempt to listen, understand, and strive for fairness. And here's another one from that quote. So this idea is the same. It's like, as the Quaker thing is like, we have a light within all of us and that needs to be heard and respected in order for us to be able to function. So here's another one from this book. If the basis for interactions among the group is not kindness, tolerance, and acceptance in spite of unavoidable flaws, then there is a dynamic at work which does not support egalitarianism. And I think that's one of the things, too, about um, Quaker process, which is, you know, one of the one of the critiques of Occupy was that, oh, it, it fell apart and the, like, consensus didn't work. But, like, consensus has worked among Quaker communities for the entire history of Quaker communities. Um, and that's not a mistake. There are tens of thousands of Quakers. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons that it's... I it, mean, more than that, if you count non-programmed. Yes, yeah. Just just among I mean, programmed. Un- unprogrammed who function explicitly on a consensus-based model. Oh, I model. see, yeah. Um, and the uh, one of the reasons that works is because when people have come together, um, they there's what is sometimes referred to as, as spirit-led consensus, and that's where in the gathering in the process of making decisions, everyone pauses. When someone speaks, they're speaking to add something to the silence. If there's not something that is that can uh, that needs to profoundly be said into the discussion, then people may sit silent and, and reflect. And that's something that I think is is sometimes not common in other decision-making processes, which can make adapting to consensus difficult, where um, uh, folks may come in thinking that they always need to share their opinion, um, and that's simply not always the case, or the best case. Uh, and um, a misunderstanding about consensus is the idea that that means everybody agrees yeah. with everything. Uh, there's different consensus so, so the sense the consensus model the quakers and consensus model is hundreds of years old and then anarchists have also been refining it for a long time too it's a very sophisticated there's lots of different ways to do it the idea being that if you're not just using a single authoritarian model then you can adapt these decision making processes to the specific needs 
whatever speaks to your group's condition, basically. So um, there is, you know, using... So, so yeah, so that's the, that's the idea is that you want to make sure with whichever, whichever sort of resources you have and the people that you're working with that you can get everybody to be able to be involved in the process. And not only if you have everybody involved, people say, well, it takes too long. Well, it can take longer, but you also end up with better decisions because um, both anarchists and Quakers understand that diversity of opinions and diversity of perspectives when they are, then when that is respected and honored and even and loved and celebrated, you end up with much stronger decisions at the end of these decision making processes, even if it may take a little longer sometimes. And that sometimes also means that there's you know there's space for learning and there's time taken for that. Um, and you know not all opinions are equal either. You no, know, that there's some. <laughs> uh, you know there there are reasons. Um, there are reasons to listen uh, more intently. Um, and, um, you know, I think Quakers often use this sort of uh, horizontal process because it's important that no person controls a meeting or takes, you know, takes power over, mm-hmm. but that we all, um, among Quakers, that it's, it's important to um, share in the work of the meeting and share in... Um, share in the beliefs and the philosophy of the meeting rather than having one person controlling. And I think the same is true for anarchists where rather than having one person running the show, I know what's up. Like, no, that's considered toxic. Right. Because authority is illegitimate and authority is toxic. So you don't want, you want to make sure that we are all, and this is a Quakery thing too, is that we're all connected to the, to power and that we all have the right to be involved in that. And so that, Authority, just like we don't believe that a pastor can interpret God for us, um, is illegitimate. Authority is illegitimate and needs to be seen as something to be vigilant about, to be kept out of both of our own personal um, inside selves, as well as out of process in order for you to really be able to gain a true egalitarianism. Absolutely. Um, also, I liked Quakeriness as a phrase. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, there, uh, one biblical quote in Matthew 18, 20, um, which is that, uh, for where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Um, and I think this speaks to that, you know, sometimes we do find ourselves in small groups, and small groups can be a great place of action. Um, and that both should inspire us, you know, even if we are... Um, if we feel compelled, if we feel led to take an action, um, that we can do so, which is something that um, a lot of anarchists believe also, that it's important to have agency in your community. It's important to be able to take actions. Um, and Quakers share similarly, you know, like if, if several people are passionate about something, they may form an ad hoc committee um, and take on uh, take on a task in that way where people... Um, the two or three members may come together to work on a project, especially and nurture that, especially in its early stages. Yep. And so then the idea, um, I heard this talking to or going to a workshop with somebody from the base Brooklyn who's talking about Rojava and the idea that they work really hard to educate and instill revolutionary values in everybody that they're working with in Rojava because once you have, once we are, once your actions are coming out of a place of revolutionary values then everything that you do ends up better and ends up within the sort of kinds of actions that people want to be taking. And this idea of working from revolutionary values internally is very similar. Like there's one of my favorite quotes is Howard Brinton. He's a Quaker that said, um, inward, um, inward state and outward action are component parts of a single whole. So that's pretty great. Um, and, you know, another thing that, um, Quakers and anarchists have in common, we're sort of making the case in this episode that they're, that Quakers and anarchists are, are overlapping groups here, um, in a lot of ways, not that all Quakers are anarchists or that all anarchists are Quakers. Um, I'm pretty sure not all anarchists are Quakers. (laughs) Um, but you know, that there is, there's something similar going on here and there's something really special in these groups, um, is that in terms of direct action, taking action on conflicts, one of the things that we see um, anarchists and uh, and Quakers doing is responding to disaster with compassion. Um, and this is something that we see 
capitalists really struggle with. Um, <laughs> I don't know if they're actually struggling. I think they just don't care. They just, they just don't. Well, I mean, <laughs> when you think about, like, um, after a major hurricane um, or when there was a big earthquake in Haiti, they had, there was lots of donations and, and so on. Um, oh, I see what you mean. Just people working within a capitalist yeah, model. Not necessarily, like... But you don't see corporations, the you know, the largest sort of channelers of money in uh, U.S. corporate society, um, donating huge amounts. You know, you might see, oh, we gave we gave a hundred bucks, or well, a corporation might be like, oh yeah, we we asked our employees to chip in, yeah, and, and we, we raised a couple. Well, thousand I mean, dollars. I mean, it gets complicated with like tax law and being able to um, write off donations and stuff. Like, I don't know if that's like totally true what you're saying, but the idea being that they're not, again, like they're not on the ground. Well, no, but I mean, like corporations in their their mission is to raise funds for their shareholders. Like there are, there have been federal court cases that have said that their primary mission is to is to generate funding for their shareholders, right. and so like their mission is not to care about people. And so like the primary mode of like economic and the direction of of most people's work in their lives um, has been directed towards these institutions that don't care about people. Right. You know that if they're hurt, in fact, the role of the corporation cannot be to care. In some ways, like it, we have institutions that encourage a sort of. Mm sociopathic view of the world right this goes back to the the idea of incentives and how important incentives are in uh in societal models and why anarchists talk a lot about incentives absolutely um but we see both quakers and anarchists really responding um after world war one and world war two and the israeli-palestine conflict um quakers responded through quaker service organizations and not only like tens of millions of dollars of aid, but also um, many, many Quakers showed up to volunteer and help and help people recover, help uh, help societies rebuild. Um, many of what we think of as like the Palestine, Palestinian refugee camps in uh, uh, in Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, um, and Egypt um, were set up by the Quaker Voluntary Service to help people. Um, and that was later turned over to uh, the United Nations, which is why we have United Nations camps in those same places. Uh, but that was that was Quaker work on the ground, um, and um, and I think that's that's important in terms of that response. And like anarchists as well have a very long history of responding to disasters. Um, Scott Crow wrote a book, Black Flags and Windmills, specifically about responding to after Hurricane Katrina, where for more than a week George Bush sat on his hands and no aid came to the tens of thousands of people trapped in New Orleans, right? Um, the levees broke, the city flooded uh, after Hurricane Katrina, and no aid from the federal government came. Like, why were people paying taxes? Why even have a federal government, you know? like, um, And anarchists came in and delivered food aid, helped organize with communities, and responded directly to provide people uh, with the support that they needed when uh, – the federal government not only didn't help, but actively used the National Guard to tell people, tell aid organizations not to come in. Um, and it took a, uh, it took people of compassion who were willing to sort of circumvent the law there to say, no, mm-hmm. we need, we need to go around yep. your barricades to help people. Like this, this work has to happen. This is more important yep. than your, you know, than your barricade here. Yeah, I mean, anarchists are literally will- willing to break unjust laws to help the oppressed. So great. And that's <laughs> Jesus you know, was into that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you also look at um, anarchist values of no borders. We don't believe it's sort of an anti-statist border that all states are illegitimate as well. So that the um, the international borders are also illegitimate. So anarchists are strongly, strongly um, key and very active in refugee work, especially in Greece right now. Um, they're they are on the ground saving people's lives, saving refugees' lives, making their lives um, more bearable and more humane yeah. and creating communities. So, um, And all doing this, um, I'd like to say, very humbly, you know, like you've got these a lot of aid organizations that say, you know, the Christian and they, they spout very loudly what they're doing and the sort of aid that they're doing when anarchists are literally faceless and nameless and doing <laughs> this work. You know what I mean? Like that is like... You, you know, Jesus talks about don't screw up your face so people know you're fasting. You know, like don't pray loudly in front of people so that you're getting their praise. You know, none of this performative allyship crap, right? <laughs> <laughs> like go into your closet and pray, you know? Like, and so that's sort of, that's what anarchists do. Nobody knows what they're doing because they don't, you know what I mean? Nobody's advertising that. Yeah, yeah, it's very, it's very humble. You know, in it's, some way, it's, you know? it's interesting that... Um, 
you know, and I, I mean this really sincerely that, you know, it's interesting that there are depictions of anarchists in riots and so on. And people are like, oh, this is so terrible. But, like, really think for a minute that these are people in your community who genuinely care about the community, genuinely care about the lives and work for the health and safety of people. Um, if they are rioting, that should raise very real questions about is something wrong in our society? Mm-hmm. You know, that there's there's a that there's this like sort of drastic expression of um of suffering and of discontent what does that say about our society just sort of a a passionate frustration with systems of oppression and that's something that jesus was very he was he got very frustrated with people for not paying attention to oppression you know and i see that too in anarchists like very fresh it can be very angering and very frustrating to see people be so unempathetic you know and that the sort of more authoritarian structure of our society where like our military is controlled by the president, all of the um, uh, administrative bodies of the government, the sort of administrative government are all directly responding to the U.S. presidency. Um, and there's some other whatever the Congress does, some budget things. But like basically um, the president has the final say about what institutions do and how they carry out their policies. And you know, so when there are large oppressive structures that spread across institutions, across, that spread, you know, across policies, um, you know, really at, at some point, um, individuals, it, it's very easy to feel um, as individuals that you don't have a lot of power. You know, that the people who have the power are far away. Who People who are making decisions, you have to appeal to the authority, you have to beg them to, you know... Uh, well, let's make sure that we have access, you know, to medical care. Oh, can, do we have to beg you that we can go to hospitals? Do we have to beg you to cover ambulances? Do we have to beg you um, to provide public transportation? Do we have to beg you that our streets aren't falling apart? Um, you know, and in some ways, like, it's shocking to me, especially with regard to, like, Black Lives Matter, where you have police departments, which are all, you know, running on authoritarian structures, where you have a chief and you have deputies and you have officers in every county, um, in every state in the United States, you have all these police departments, and in almost every single state, there are police murders of unarmed black people, you know, and Black Lives Matter saying, our lives matter, our lives are valuable, and in this way, literally begging for their lives, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, having having been to some Black Lives Matter uh, yeah. protests and marches, yeah. um, there's a certain amount of power and agency in saying, you know, we're taking action. But also, I think that there's um, there's really something there that that individuals, in some ways, mm-hmm. don't have this power. That there is this authority, this authoritarian structure that's able to take people's lives away. Yeah, and then you know, there's actually that ties into the fact that both Quakers and anarchists have been very involved in ab- abolitionist movement in prison, um, in prison abolition, and in prisoner rights and care and um, so that's that's just another way where you can see that sort of believing that everybody is equal and everybody has rights means that prisons are intolerable to exist um, because you can't keep people in that kind of conditions. And um, so one, um, yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, that I think raises a couple things too, that there's a lot of... Um, ideological positions that uh, Quakers and anarchists have come to that are very similar. Um, Anarchism has taken, as you mentioned, prison abolition. Quakers have a long time uh, talked about they would rather see reconciliation, alternative justice, restorative justice models. Mm -hmm. Anarchists have often say, you know, we oppose all borders. We think that the state itself is is of questionable ethical value. The Black Panthers talked about restorative justice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... uh, Quakers, in, in reference to the borders, have also said, you know, that it's critical to love thy neighbor. Like, this is a, this is a central tenet of Jesus' message. Um, anarchists have said, you know, we uh, respect the equality of all people based on race, gender, class, ability. Um, and Quakers have said, God is in all people. You know, these are these are reaching the same conclusions. Anarchists have also said we oppose all arbitrary authority. Um, Quakers say, you know, it's important to follow one's conscience, not just the law. And the other, um, one of the big things is the idea of kind of a utopian vision uh, that there is, in fact, a possibility of a better world. That in the end, both Quakerism and anarchism have an overall view, like a positive, optimistic, very optimistic view of humanity. That 
direct democracy does in fact work, that it can in fact work, that it can be a system that we don't need, to, that people are not having to be reliant on other people telling them what to do, that we all have worth, and that a system based in direct democracy and based in the quality of all people is something that can actually be instituted in the real world. Absolutely. And so um, I think that that is a pretty beautiful thing, and I, that, that both of those things really speak to me, and I do believe I do believe that an anarchist society could work, and we're going to talk about why that is in other in uh, further episodes because they already are working one and, and have worked historically, right? And uh, uh, we're going to need to wrap it up. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, and, and one thing I want to one idea I want to end on here is that I think that anarchists and Quakers also ask many of the same questions. Um, Quakers ask this in moral ways, while anarchists often ask sort of ethically. And there could be divergences there, but in practice, the Quaker question of, is this a right relationship with God that God would have in heaven, sounds remarkably to me like the anarchist question, is this power relationship exploitative, violent, or coercive in any way? In asking the similar questions, um, there are many times where Quakers and anarchists come to the same or to proximal answers. Hmm. Yep. Uh, so thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to KEPW LPFM 97.3, uh, Eugene Homegrown Radio. We are very happy to have been able to do this. Please go to their page and donate if you can. Uh, they're giving us this space for free in a beautiful act of mutual aid. Huzzah! Huzzah! <laughs> um, and you've been listening to Friendly Anarchism, uh, Quaker and Anarchist Talk. Yep, we are going to be here every Sunday now. We have a regular slot, Sundays at 3 o'clock, and we will also be posting this recording on our SoundCloud and make that available from our Facebook page, which is just called Friendly Anarchism. You can also follow us on Twitter at at Friend Anarchism. And you can email us at friendlyanarchism at protonmail.com. And that's a secure email. All right, thank you so much. Thank you so much.